to go. Um, the church leadership team here at Malden Road worked towards a vision statement for the church that tried to capture the key elements of the church we want to be. And you can still see that vision statement on the church website. And in an attempt to sum up that vision statement in one phrase, we came up with the following strapline for the church. It's a, it's a sort of strapline you're probably reasonably familiar with if you come here quite a bit. hope you can read that. Um, the strapline is delighting in God displaying his glory. And that phrase tries to summarize our desire as a church to be people who find their joy in knowing God and who want to make God known to the peoples of East Oxford and the world. But as you read over that strapline, you might be forgiven for asking, well, who is this God that this church wants to delight in? And how can they delight in him. How can we find our joy in this God? See, the first part of that question, who is this God that this church delights in? I mention that because the name God can mean so many different things to different people. So we want to delight in God in our life as a people at Modern Road. But which God are we delighting in? Which God are we trusting in? Someone might ask us, well, who is he? There's so many out there. See, God can be a slippery word, hard to define. You see, in spite of the efforts of some prominent atheists like Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens, and much of their annoyance, belief in God is still widespread. In my experience, I've met very few convinced atheists in my life. But that isn't immediately a cause to celebrate because there is so much difference in opinion as to what exactly God is like. See, for some, their understanding of God is defined by a religious affiliation. But for many in the West today, there's a growing trend for people to define their understanding of God solely on their own terms. So a phrase I've heard many friends use over the years is, well, when I think of God, I like to think of him as... And then they mention something that appeals to them, a characteristic that means a lot to them. So for a lot of people in the West, we get to choose what God is like. It's a bit like when you buy a new Mini built right here in Oxford. And one of the huge attractions of that car, one of the key ways they've marketed it, is that you can actually personalise it. When you buy it, you get to choose whether or not it has a pattern on the roof or a stripe on the bonnet, what colour it is. I mean, it's still a Mini, There are things on it that don't change, but as a consumer, you can make it look the way you want it to look. And for a lot of people, that's how we view God. Maybe there are some things that stay reasonably constant in our Western culture. So, God is usually invisible. That's a constant. You usually talk to God by praying to him. And there's usually a sense that believing in God is a good thing. It brings meaning to your life. But beyond that, you can go ahead and personalise God as much as you want to. See, would you rather God was just loving and forgiving? Or would you like your God to get angry about the things you get angry about? Does your God call you to live to a certain standard in your life? Or is your God just, well, just go for it, do your own thing, I don't mind? Does your God like it when you abstain from certain things, maybe certain foods or or drink or sex? 
Or does your God want you to do whatever you want in your life, to live your life to the full? See, just like a mini, we live in the age of the personalized God. And let's be clear that, that Christians are not immune to this tendency. Just because someone claims to follow Jesus, just because they read their Bible, they come to church, we are still, all of us, just as likely to drift into that tendency to remake God in our own image. So we come to that phrase again, delighting in God, displaying his glory. But which God do we want to delight in? And how can we find our joy in him? Well, the passage in the Bible we're looking at this morning in 2 Samuel chapter 6 records an episode in the life of David that portrays God in some ways that may shock us. See, in this chapter we meet a God who is very unlike the personalized God we hear about in the world around us. See, the God of 2 Samuel 6 is frightening. He strikes a man dead for failing to honor his holiness while at the same time he provokes amazing joy and celebration from David and his people. See, the God of 2 Samuel 6, he's shocking, he's frightening, but he is also life-giving and joy-giving to his people. See, in many ways, this God is pretty baffling to us at first glance. But David discovers in this passage, as we can discover with him, That it's this God, the God of the Bible, in some ways the difficult God, who is the only God worth delighting in, the only God worth trusting in, a God that that knocks the stripes off our personalized gods who are made to measure. See, this God is utterly holy, utterly different to us, and yet he alone is the one who can give us joy in our lives. So David learned some hard lessons about this God this morning, but there are lessons we can learn with him and that can show us how we can find our joy in the living God. So just to set the scene briefly, we've actually jumped quite a way in the life of David from last week. Last week we looked at 1 Samuel 17 and David's famous victory over Goliath. And at that stage in his life, David had been anointed king over Israel by the prophet Samuel. But it would be several years before David was actually crowned king over his people. So after defeating Goliath, David became a national hero in Israel. The people loved him. They even wrote songs about him. We see that in chapter 18 of 1 Samuel. And King Saul, the sitting king, the king on the throne at that time, became deeply jealous and suspicious of David. He tried to kill David with the result that David was a renegade for many years on the run for his life from King Saul until Saul himself died in battle at the end of 1 Samuel. So the opening chapters of 2 Samuel record how David finally came to sit on the throne of Israel. So now by chapter 6 David is king and he is consolidating his rule in Jerusalem by bringing a very special artifact, the Ark of the Covenant, to Jerusalem. Just begin reading at verse 1. David again brought together out of Israel chosen men, 30,000 in all, 
he and all his men set out from Bala of Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim that are on the ark. Now it's worth asking, why all this fanfare over a gold box, the ark of the covenant? We see for ancient Israel, the ark represented the presence of the Lord himself with his people. See, during their wanderings in the desert, wherever the ark was, there the Lord was with him. There's an excerpt from the book of Numbers that records this. It goes, whenever the ark set out, Moses said, rise up, O Lord, may your enemies be scattered, may your foes flee before you. And whenever it came to rest, he said, return, O Lord, to Israel. You see, thanks to to Indiana Jones, the Ark of the Covenant might mean to us big rolling balls and melting Nazis. But for David and for the Israelites, this was the presence of the living God with them. The Ark was deeply holy and significant in their life together. And it's unclear just what David's motives are in bringing the Ark to Jerusalem in this chapter. See, in the past few weeks we've emphasised the ways in which David acts as a picture of Jesus in the Old Testament. But we need also to see that David is also just a man, a human being like us, with mixed motives. So just as in our lives, his motives here may be selfish as well as noble. See, positively in bringing the ark to Jerusalem, David is saying he wants the presence of God with him as he rules over the nation. But at the same time, there's a hint in this chapter that David's eyes are on his own glory as well. See, he wants the ark in Jerusalem to consolidate his reign, to say, yes, I am the king of Israel, and I've got the ark to prove it. So David might have wanted the presence of God, but he also wanted glory for himself. But as the chapter unfolds, David is not quite as prepared for God's presence as he thought he was. See, here's where the living God makes his presence felt and where David learns a valuable lesson about the living God. He learns that the real God refuses to be controlled by us. Just read verses 3 to 5 for us. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, with songs and with harps, lyres, tambourines, sistrums and cymbals. See, the scene is described vividly. The ark of the covenant is on the back of a new cart pulled by oxen, and there is a huge celebration around it. David and his subjects are singing and dancing with all their might before the Lord. 30,000 of David's men are there alongside countless other ordinary Israelites. And the music must have been deafening on that day. The people are overwhelmed with the excitement. They have both their new king and the Ark of the Covenant together with them. It was a thrilling time of worship of God. Until, that is, God showed up. Verse 6. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, 
Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. See, suddenly the party is over. Uzzah is lying dead next to the Ark of the Covenant. David and the people look on, shocked at what has just happened. And David has learnt a painful lesson. The living God cannot be manipulated to serve David's ends. He refuses to play by David's rules. And he refuses to play by our rules as well. I mean, I've already said, this is a difficult passage for many of us. Why did God strike Uzzah dead for touching the ark? But again, to grasp that, we just need to see what the ark represented for Israel. It was the presence of God. In grabbing hold of the ark, Uzzah was saying he could grab hold of God. The God who had created Israel. The God who had redeemed them from slavery. And God had warned his people back in the book of Numbers if they touched the holy things in the ark, they would die. So let's be clear here. Uzzah was the son of a Levite. Verse 3. The ark had stayed in Uzzah's house for several years, ever since it was taken there in 1 Samuel 7. Uzzah may even have grown up with the ark in his house. He knew all about the warnings about the ark. He would have been taught them by his father. But in verse 6, Uzzah demonstrated those warnings had made very little impact on him. And why? Because to Uzzah, the God he believed in was thoroughly domesticated. Uzzah's God was toothless. He warned about things, but actually Uzzah didn't believe he would ever follow through. And crucially for Uzzah, when the ark was about to fall, Uzzah himself had to rescue God at that moment. That's what Uzzah's doing here. By putting his hands on the ark, he's saying, God is powerless without me. And that is an attitude that actually can characterize us as well. Uzzah's sin in many ways is obviously unique. But for us, I want to ask the question, are you ever guilty of seeing God as small and powerless? Do you ever view your God as someone who who says grand things in his word, who makes grand promises, but actually he isn't able to follow through on them? Put simply, is your God too small? Perhaps like you, you've heard about God and Jesus all your life. You've grown up in a community that has taught you about Jesus. Or maybe you belong to a church for quite some time. You know a lot of the stories about the living God, about Jesus, his miracles, his, his death and resurrection. But deep down, you believe, no, God isn't really that powerful. And perhaps at other times you think, you know, without me, God's purposes would just collapse in this place. Without me doing my bit, God is powerless to work. 
See, like Yuza, your God has become small, domesticated, powerless in the face of the modern world without you reaching out and taking hold of him. As a result, your God isn't worth delighting in because you are the strong one, not God. Why would you delight in him? Why would you give him the glory when it's all about you and what you do? Well, if that's how you've begun to feel about God, if your God has become small in your eyes, then look at this chapter again. Look at the powerful and terrifying God of verse 7 again. Because this God doesn't need you to fight his battles for him. He is capable of fighting them for himself. And when this God says he will do something, he does it. And there is no question that he will do it. You see, this God demands we repent of our pride and we acknowledge, yes, he is the great God. This is the God worth trusting in. Not in my efforts. And this is the God who will follow through on what he promises to do in my life, for good or for ill. If I continue to treat him with contempt, he will reject me as he rejected Yuza. But Yuza wasn't the only one guilty of sin in his attitude towards God here, because David was guilty too. By striking down Yuza, God is making it clear to David he was not happy with David's attitude towards God in bringing the ark to Jerusalem. Because David's attitude towards God seems to have been that God exists to serve me. See, for David, bringing the ark to Jerusalem was more about magnifying his own glory, his own pride, if you like it, than about honouring God and having his presence in that city. The celebrations that day were more to do with David than they were to do with the living God. David didn't have God's glory at the forefront of his mind. So God needed to rebuke David of that. See, even by transporting the ark on the back of a cart with oxen was actually going against the Bible's teaching on how to move the ark. Back again in the book of Numbers, the clear instruction was it was to be carried with poles on the back of Levites. The people who put the ark on the back of an ox-driven cart were actually the Philistines back in 1 Samuel 6. David had learnt how to treat his God the same way that the Philistines treated their gods. As someone he could control. As someone he could manipulate. As someone that it wasn't that important how you treated him. But you see, the living God isn't like that. And he wants David to know it. The only reason David is king is because God had made him king. God had given David everything. And in forgetting that, David was guilty of a dangerous pride before God. So as with Yuza, so David's attitude towards God can be something that can affect us in our lives. And see, in our relationship with God, like David, we need to see something. That we are not the centre of the universe. God is. God doesn't exist to serve us. We exist to know him and to serve him. And it's so important that we get that right. Otherwise, 
we will shipwreck our faith. If we believe God exists only to give us what we want, then when he doesn't, we will not trust him any longer. We will turn our backs on him. I can think of a close friend of mine when I was growing up, an older Christian. He had a huge impact on me becoming a Christian in the first place. I admired and respected him. I took my questions to him. And he was always gracious and loving in the way he answered those questions. But what I didn't know was at that time he was suffering with real loneliness brought about by bullying he had received earlier in his life. And he was praying time and again that God would take away that sense of loneliness. God would would restore him. God would make his life better. But when God didn't seem to answer that prayer the way my friend wanted him to, my friend turned his back on God. He said, well, if that's what God is like, I don't want to know. My friend had started to think of God as someone who'd existed to serve him. And if God didn't do what he wanted, he wanted his money back. He wanted a different God or no God at all. See, I don't want to be glib about that. We all of us will face times in our lives when we long for God to do something and he just doesn't seem to do it. But we need to learn a lesson here. God cannot be controlled by us. And his purposes may be very different to ours. And the challenge for us is will we trust that his purposes are the right ones? Because we're not dealing with a domesticated, personalized God here. We're dealing with a living God, the God of holiness. So the first lesson David learns is that the real God refuses to be controlled by us. And David's response to that is one that, again, we might relate to in verses 8 and 9. First, in verse 8, David is angry at God for failing to give him what he wanted, a smooth transition of the ark into Jerusalem. And then in verse 9, David is scared of God. This God is just too dangerous for him. Verse 9, David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? David had moved from seeing God as small and able to, and able to control him to a point where he's terrified of God and he runs from God. He feels, I cannot survive in relationship with a God this big. This powerful. And again, that is something that may affect us sometimes. If God is that difficult, that unpredictable at times, if his purposes are so very different to my own, then aren't I better off without him? Can't I just muddle through on my own? Shouldn't I just keep a safe distance from God and his purposes? But then in verse 11 something remarkable happens. Just read verses 11 and 12. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. 
see, David learns something else about the living God here. He cannot be controlled. He certainly isn't safe. But he is good. The living God is good and longs to bless people. Those of you who know your Narnia books may know I'm actually quoting C.S. Lewis here from The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. And in that book, Aslan, the lion, is a picture of Jesus. But when the four children in the story first hear that Aslan is a lion, they understandably get very nervous. And one of the children, Lucy, asks about him, is he quite safe? And the reply comes, of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And in that exchange, Lewis captures a key characteristic of the God of the Bible. He isn't safe. He is a lion. He is holy, and we cannot think we can control him. But he is good. And he loves to bless people who humble themselves before him. And he alone is worth delighting in and trusting in in our lives. See, the very ark that killed Yuza now brings life and blessing to the household of Obed-Edom. The same God who struck down one man brings blessing to the one who humbles himself before him. See, again, we see this God is frightening at times. He moves in mysterious ways, but only he has the power to bring life and blessing to his people. See, when I read passages like this, I'm actually encouraged because I feel, well, no one would make up this God. No one would personalize this God of the Bible. He has too many hard edges. He works in such unexpected ways. But it's often through those unexpected, painful ways, he actually chooses to bless us. The prime example of that is through the cross of Jesus an object of pain and torture through which he brings us life and forgiveness. God cannot be controlled. God is frightening sometimes. His purposes are not our purposes. But he is good and he wants to bless us. So the chapter ends with the ark finally arriving in Jerusalem, and a humbled David who has learnt some hard lessons about this living God. But I want us to notice that, that we don't leave David somberly pondering God. Well, yes, he's very difficult, isn't he? We don't leave David thinking, he's quite complex, isn't he? I think I'll write a theology tome about this God. No, we actually leave David in exuberant joy that he does know this living holy, terrifying God and he can actually be blessed by him. See, the real God, the God of the Bible gives life and joy to the people who humble themselves before him. See, in verse 13, the writer alludes to David having learnt his lesson about the ark. The ark is now being carried in accordance with God's law rather than on the back of a cart. But obedience to God's law doesn't remove the exuberance of the worship of David. Verses 14 
and 15. David, wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all his might, while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and sounds of trumpet. See, David has encountered the living God. He has been taught hard lessons about him. But he says, well, this is the God worth delighting in. This is the God who can give joy. He is so much more powerful than I ever imagined him to be. But he is good and he blesses us. See, the result of David's hard lesson in this chapter is a king who is liberated from his pride. Beforehand, David was living for his own glory. He had just become king. He was drunk with that. And God had to remind him who had made him king, who was truly in control. But once David learnt that, he set free from trying to display his own glory, to make people value him, worship him. Instead, David is free to worship the living God and to make him known. That is the source of David's joy here. And it can be the source of our joy as a church together, humbling ourselves before the living holy God because it can exhaust us if we live for our own glory it exhausts us when we think I've got to live to win the respect of the people around me I've got to achieve certain things in my life otherwise I am a failure I've got to get people to acclaim me praise me for what I've done for them no you see we need to humble ourselves before the God who alone deserves that glory, that acclaim. And then we're actually set free to delight in him and trust in him. In verse 20, when David comes home, after celebrating before God, he meets his wife, Michael, and she cannot let go of the glory she wants for herself. So she is actually excluded from the joy of that day in Jerusalem. But you see David's response to his wife, verse 21. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. See, David tells Michael, my reputation doesn't matter because actually it's not ultimately about me. What really matters is I use my life and my reign to proclaim the glory of the living God. Nothing else compares to that, says David. And nothing else compares to that, says the New Testament to us. It's perhaps surprising that a chapter that begins with such fear ends with such joy. But see, that is how the living God works. Remember the hymn, Amazing grace. Grace that taught my heart to fear. And grace my fears relieved. We first of all need to see God is to be feared. He is holy. He's not a domesticated, personalized God. But once we accept that, once we humble ourselves before him, once we accept the gift of his son Jesus, then actually he relieves those fears. He invites us to know him, to trust him with our whole lives, 
to humble ourselves before him and to find joy in that act of humbling. Paul put it like this. Whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of knowing Christ. Paul says, I don't want to boast about anything except the fact that I know Jesus Christ who went to a cross for me that I could know the holy, living, awesome God as not a God of terror but as a Father who is good and who blesses those who humble themselves before him. The God of the Bible is shocking sometimes but he is the God worth delighting in.